don't have to necessarily even go to the Islamic world. I mean, they're all around us. But I started running into Muslims. And here's the thing that I found out about Muslims is they love to talk about God, the Bible, and Jesus. I was like, these guys are kind of like my, they're like my, my uh, arch frenemies, you know. They're sort of like my soulmates, but they're just coming from a different perspective. And, and, and most, you know, Easterners from that Eastern culture, the thing that, you know, Americans, if you go, okay, like, you know, this brother here, I want to talk about God. I want to, the one thing we don't talk about is God and politics. And if you do, it's like, well, that guy's pushy, or that guy has bad vibes, and, you know, whatever, and, oh, he... But in the Middle East, it's like you can just sit there and argue and, and, and just have this, like, passionate discussion and you both exchange a little bit of spittle on each other's face and you're just going for it. And, and you can talk about anything. And then after two hours, it's like, you know, we just had an argument for two hours. And it's like, okay, my friend, hey, like, I'll see you next week. This was great. You know, and, they, and there's no offense. There's not that sort of that offense that we have here in the West as long as you don't talk about Israel. Uh, by, you can talk about anything, just don't talk about Israel. And they'll be happy to, you know, share with you again next week. And so I just fell in love with Muslims. And so really, you know, long story short, I don't want to go through, you know, a whole testimony. But uh, in various ways, I spent better part of 94, I was living in Israel, uh, bouncing around between Egypt and Jordan, and just saying, Lord, teach me about this thing called the Middle East, you know, sitting down with Jews, sitting down with Muslims. And, um, you know, hello, my friend, Come. Come, where are you from? Uh, America. Oh, uh, you know, you have girlfriend, you have mother. What we have is very fine perfumes. You know, I'm like, I have no money. Like, you don't understand, I'm a 22-year-old kid with a backpack. I've got like the equivalent of 30 cents in my pocket. No, you're an American. Come on in. And so they're just trying to sell you a carpet or whatever. But, you know, the two-hour tea and conversation. And, and um, it was just great. It was like this fantastic you know, Holy Spirit-inspired adventure. Came back to the States, was doing some college ministry in the city where I'm from in the Midwest, reaching out to Muslims, met my wife, babies, sickness, different things happen, life happens, basically. And so that sort of commitment to give myself to the Islamic world, I wanted to move to the Middle East. That was sort of part of my five-year long-term plan or short-term plan. It really never manifested. I've never given, I've never lived overseas, but I've been Given myself to Muslims, interacting, volunteering, doing email correspondence for years was just sort of my secret little uh, passion and just, you know, arguing with Muslims or, you know, having dialogue with dozens of Muslims from all over the world. And I just love that. Then what happened is 9-11. Okay, so before 9-11, everything was, you know, the Internet was just the Wild West. You know, you'd get in a real talk, conversation with some guy and he'd, He'd just openly declare that he's, you know, gonna, they're going to conquer America and jihad and all this stuff. They're a little bit more low-key now, uh, you know, if they're living in the United States. I mean, it was just, it was crazy during the 90s. 9-11 happened, and what happened was we started getting all these emails from people. We used to get emails from Muslims all the time. 9-11 happened, we started getting emails from Americans. And many of these Americans after 9-11, they said, what's Islam? What's this thing? And I want to understand it. And they started going out. The Quran became the bestseller for a couple of years. And they would go on these forums and chat forums, and they would you know, meet Muslims. They would go to the mosque. And you had Americans and Westerners converting to Islam like crazy for a couple of years. And so I found myself in dialogue with people that were raised in you know, churches just like this, or, or some of them nominal Catholics, whatever. And often, despite my best efforts to give the apologetic for the faith and why Islam, the whole narrative doesn't hold water and why the Quran's just a complete mess, I was seeing Westerners convert to Islam, people raised in the church. And it was devastating. I mean, it was, I walked around depressed for a couple of years. And, you know, we would save some out of the fire. But the ratio was that more were actually converting in. And so it was during that time that I realized, okay, the Western church needs to be educated. And so there was sort of a shift there that I started moving more toward uh, ministering in the churches, trying to awaken the church to Islam. But it was also during that time that, and by the way, when you're in dialogue with Muslims, you're really in dialogue. I mean, they really are. They're like Jehovah's Witnesses on steroids or whatever. Jehovah's Witnesses on crack or steroids and crack. 
and um, and they're trained, especially the young guys. You know, they're like they they approach theology the way they approach jihad. It's like you know, Christian. You know, it's like they just they just look forward to defeat you in, in argument. And so, you know, as as I, I just have this revolving stack of books, and I'm kind of from Boston. I'm kind of fighty, so I'm like, I'm not going to lose an argument. And so, you know, I'm going through the history of the development and the canon of Scripture and, and, and the early church fathers and ecclesiology and the Trinity, and, you know, and, and just, just kind of going through everything. And you got four arguments going at one time and just that ever-evolving stack of books. Because during that time, I started studying Islamic eschatology. What do Muslims believe about the end of the age or the end of the, the end times? And what I realized is that they have their own narrative and just like we believe in the end times, they have their own narrative. And it's essentially sort of just like what we believe in reverse. And so in a sense, they have this Messiah figure that uh, is very similar to our Antichrist. And when you start looking at it, so that's when I had written my first book, Islamic Antichrist. If you're interested in all that stuff, grab those books. You'll find it very interesting. What I want to focus on here with this session is more of the big picture. I want to kind of get away from, um, you know, when people see those titles, Islamic Antichrist, they think it's it's really largely about sort of demonizing Muslims or something. That's certainly not the case. I, I want to be very clear. I hate Islam. I think it's demonic. I think it's from the pit of hell. And the reason that I'm so straightforward about that is because I love Muslims. And I think Muslims are the first victims of Islam. And I want to see them become Christians. You know, it's just, it's really simple. I don't want to affirm the deception that they're under. So, the title of this session today, Understanding and Loving Muslims. The thing that we want to do, because this issue is not going away. The next 10 years, it's only going to increase. I don't know what type of Muslim population you have here in uh, Las Vegas, but or you know, if you go on to other places, parts of the countries where it's exploding. Many of you might work with Muslims and, and so on and so forth. So really, the key is, in, you know, especially we see all this stuff going on. If, you're a news junkie like me, you're following what's going on in the Middle East, they're beheading people by the hundreds and thousands, they're beheading children. I mean, and it's it's easy to give ourselves over just by following the news to fear and hatred. But we are the ambassadors of the Father, and we want to be those that have a heavenly perspective. So that's really uh, what we're going to be talking about today. So there's a little bit of a typo there, but this is sort of a very loose uh, overview, sort of biblical history. You had Father Abraham, he had Isaac and Ishmael. He's got six other sons as well, but really Isaac was the son of promise. So the Lord had promised him uh, Isaac, and then later through his son Jacob would become these promises whereby the Lord had made the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that I'm going to give you through your descendants the land of Israel. And then ultimately, much further down the road, you've got Jesus, who's a descendant of Jacob through uh, Judah, and then he is, he's sort of given birth to what we call Christianity, and you know, some people say, well, Jesus didn't create Christianity, but, you know, you, know, you get the point, I'm not trying to be technical, he gave birth to this movement, which has become known as Christianity, now on the other side, you had Ishmael, which was, which we're going to talk about, Abraham and and Sarah and Hagar's efforts to sort of uh, do what God was not fulfilling at the time. They became impatient. We'll talk about that story. Now, Esau is not the son of Ishmael. He's actually the brother of Jacob. But sort of you have the other side. And then, basically 2,400 years after Ishmael, you have this young uh, man named Muhammad who believes that he's a direct descendant, claims to be a direct descendant of Ishmael from the Arab tribe of the Quraysh, and he becomes the prophet of the world's second largest and fastest growing religion known as Islam. So this is sort of just going back to the beginning, sort of the basic biblical foundations of how did we get from there to where we are right now. So I want to begin with um, the story uh, going back to the beginning, Genesis 16, verses 1 through 3. We've got a, quite a bit of scripture to read. So bear with me as, as we go through it. Now this is back when Abraham and Sarah were not yet Abraham and Sarah. They were still called Sarai and Abram. So verse 1 through 3. Now Sarai 
Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Now, we know that the Lord had promised Abraham and Sarah that you would have a child, and through that child would come all of the fulfillment of these promises that God had made to Abraham. So now, you know, they, they're becoming impatient, essentially. And so she had borne him no children, and they're a bit older at this point. But she did have an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. Now, really what this is, is the story of the snowballing effects of bad decisions and sinful decisions. You know, you begin with one bad decision, and then you just watch this thing snowball uh, into oblivion. So, they have an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So, here's bad idea number one. So, Sarai says to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Bad decision number two, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Now, again, as a man, what he should have said, as we all know, he should have used godly wisdom and said, Sarai, I even like Hagar. She is ugly compared to you. Like, what are you, crazy? No, but Abram agreed. Very, very leadership, uh, you know, great example of, Godly leadership. Okay, Sarai, you know, whatever you think, if you think that's bad. So, he agreed to what Sarai said. After Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, now notice the language here. Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian servant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Okay, we begin with the language. It's, you know, we're just, we're doing what the Lord promised, but it just wasn't fulfilled the way he said. He said he was going to give us children, but maybe it's through my maidservant, and she's going to be your wife. This is a good idea. No, it's not a good idea. Verse 4 through 6. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Now, here's the, the beginnings of the, uh, the snowballing effect. When she knew she was pregnant, she begins to despise Sarai. She begins to despise her mistress. Now, watch this. Then Sarai says to Abram, You are responsible for all the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. You know, that was a really bad idea that you had to sleep with Hagar. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now watch this. Here's the next great example of godly, manly leadership. Hey, your servant is in your hands. Do whatever you think is best to her. You know, I mean, just, hey, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't have anything to do with it. You know, just, hey, if she's mistreating you, mistreat her back. <clears throat> do whatever you think is best. So now Sarai begins mistreating Hagar. So then Hagar flees from Sarai. Verse 7 through 10. The angel of the Lord. This is God Almighty manifesting himself through an angel. This is essentially a pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son finds Hagar near the spring in the desert, the spring that's beside the road to Shur. And he says to Hagar, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? These are all these, you know, these examples back in, in Eden where the Lord's asking questions as if he doesn't know the answer. She says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord tells her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, listen, I'm making you a promise. I'm going to your descendants so they will be too numerous to count. The point is the child in your womb is going to be protected. He's going to be multiplied. I'm going to protect them. That's my word to you. They're going to become so numerous you won't even be able to count them. Skipping forward to 11 through 12. There's a key here. There's a, there's a prophetic element that we need to take note of which is that God named Ishmael. There's only a few people in the scriptures that before they were born God named changes a handful of people's names after they're born, like Abram, Abram, Sarai, became Abraham and Sarah. But he actually named this kid before he was born. When the Lord does that, that's powerful. You know, with my kids, my wife and I, we've always prayed and, and asked the Lord, who is this child that's in the womb? And, and, and who, who are you calling them to be? And who do you want us to speak through their name into their life? You know, so, uh, I'm not picking on anybody if you do that, but you know, so many people just like, you know, they're like, okay, we're going to have a baby. Like, what's a cool name that sounds awesome? You know, like, let's name him Blade. You know, Blade sounds cool or whatever. You know, just some name that has a nice rhyme to it or something. And I think people of God should be more, you know, pray into the children and, 
can speak even from that young age what, what the parents are receiving from the Lord that the child's to be. But when the Lord does it, you know it's prophetic. He's not just going, yeah, Ishmael sounds awesome. I like the way it rolls off my tongue. You know? So the angel Lord says to her, you're with child and you'll have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, which means the Lord hears. For the Lord has heard your misery. Now this is key. We serve a God who hears our misery. Okay? Now the essence, you know, not to do a marriage seminar, but the essence of what every woman yearns for is for a man who hears her, who sees her, right? And, you know, again, that's easy to preach because my wife always tells me that I don't. I'm like, but I try so hard. It's just that you speak in such a weird language. Try speaking English. English. No, I'm just kidding. So, the Lord has heard of your misery. This is the essence of the God that we serve. He is the condescending God that, that cares about us. When you're laying in bed in your misery, He hears it. He feels your pain. He is a personal God. This is very important. And then you got this section. Speaking of Ishmael, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. What is taking place throughout Iraq right now? What is taking place throughout in Iraq for the past, you know, since we since we've basically been there? Now, in the news, it's called sectarian violence. It's Shia Muslims killing Sunnis. It's Sunnis killing Shia. It's, you know, this is really the history of Islam, is Muslims killing Muslims, Muslims killing Christians, Muslims killing each other, Muslims killing Hindus. Now, the Yazidis are this sort of strange sect up there. They starved a bunch of them up in the mountains. And, I mean, this has been the history of Islam. All of Islam's borders are in conflict, and so are all of its internal uh, regions. But what all the Muslims do here is they go, oh, those Jews. Those Jews inserted an insult. They corrupted the scriptures, and they inserted this insult. But that's not true. We don't, our hand's not against anybody. It's the Jews that are stirring up all the trouble, you know. And it's just funny, because Muslims say that the Jews corrupted the scriptures. So, you know, but the bottom line is, from where I come from, I mean, to, if I'm to be honest, I'm a wild donkey. And, you know, I'm constantly trying to put myself under the bridle of the Lord. It's just, I mean, this is accurate. The Lord said, look, this is who your son is going to be, and his descendants. 13 through 16. So Hagar gives the name the Lord had spoke to her. She says, and then, now again, the God who hears my misery now, she says, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. If your husband is not very good at seeing you and hearing you, know that you have a God that does, right? Vice versa. We count too, man. If your husband, if your wife doesn't hear you, <laughs> we don't really count. <clears throat> so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. So now Abram's 86 when Hagar, when Ishmael's born. 86 years old. Okay, so he's having a boy, and she's, I don't know how old Sarah is, but she's she's probably right up there as well. Skipping forward a few chapters to chapter 21, we're actually, as we'll see, 14 years forward. Skip forward a bit. Verse 1 through 7. Now, you know, we're going back. 14 years, the Lord had promised Abram and Sarai that he would give them a promised child. They became impatient. That whole episode took place. Hagar and Ishmael. Now, 14 years later, the Lord's promises are fulfilled. So they're impatient way back here. And the Lord still had another 14 years. You know, this is the point. is The Lord gives us a promise. It's never on our timetables and our, our what we believe and how it should go. But the point is, be patient. Lord is always faithful. I was uh, last last year. I was traveling to the Middle East, and I did this thing where it was really stupid. But in buying all these tickets, I couldn't get from my city to where I needed to be, so I had to buy a couple one ways. And it was eight thousand dollars with my team of tickets. It was over eight thousand dollars worth of tickets. And if we missed our flight, I lost it all. It was like one of those deals. And it was we were in um, we were in Philadelphia, and it was raining and they started canceling flights. I'm like, it's raining? You're canceling flights. We had two hours to get to New Jersey, and I had five hours I gave myself. I just said, I'm not even going to risk it. They're, they're delaying flights. I said, 
let's get a rental car and go. So just give us our luggage. It took them three hours to find our luggage. And, I, and I, you know, I'm going, oh. And, you know, I have other people's money. Other people have funded this. And I'm, I'm about to lose eight grand. And, and we're waiting for our luggage. And I'm like, you idiots. You know, and, and just, we're just going to get in the car and go. And, and literally, we said, we got to go now. And, and we got camera equipment and all this stuff. And, and I literally, I said this in my, in my head. I was like, we've got to go now. I was like, we, otherwise we're going to miss the flight. I said, Lord, I really thought you were going to come through at the last second. Boom, the thing came up. Literally a second after I said, Lord, you weren't faithful. I thought you were going to be faithful. In your face! You know, I was just like, oh, one more second! One more second if I could have just been patient. And, oh, it was, but we made it. There. It was one of those those things. So, the Lord is gracious to Sarah. He did what he promised. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. He always does. Always. It's just never the way that we think it should be. Um, so, she becomes pregnant. She bears to Abraham in his old age. Now their names have been changed. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. He's now 100 years old, okay? So he was 86 when Ishmael was born. Now he's 100 years old. <clears throat> now, my wife and I have five kids. And so we had <coughs> three biological daughters. They're now 16, 14, 10. And then when the 10-year-old was six, we, we, uh, wanted to, we've always wanted to adopt, so we, we kind of finally started initiating that. And we... Um, adopted a little boy. Now, I don't know, and that, and then we've since uh, adopted a little girl, so now we have five, so we've got three girls, a boy, and then uh, a girl, uh, Ruby. And so, um, in our church, we had this thing years ago, and when our kids were little, it was called um, Growing Kids God's Way. Have you guys ever done that? Well, growing, it's like, it's very, it's very parent-centric. It's kind of like, Here's the way it is. This little heathen's coming into your house, and you gotta. Re- he needs to realize. I mean, as a baby, that it's your house. You know, kind of thing. I mean, that's I'm kind of exaggerating, but it's real. And so, in our church, um, you know, there's some folks that are super into it. It was kind of a wave that came through our church. Well, so with each of our kids, it was kind of like this one's gonna sleep in the crib. Like that's just the way it's gonna be. And um, and then literally like two days later, they're in bed with us. And, you know, we're just like, oh, well, he wins, she wins, you know. And which I'm not at all complaining because the, the reality is my wife does most of the work. I'm like, oh, I'm totally going to get up all night, man. I'll just feed him. And, you know, I, you do that. But, but the first three, she was not bottle feeding. So it was just easier. And I know it's dangerous and, and all that. But, and it's cool because at first, you know, the, the, you know, you're excited to get this neat little shiny thing and you know they're adorable and they're in bed with you but you know it's it's Joel and then baby and then wife right and so again that's great for a week or so um, but then you know it's like a month and it's two months and it's three months and then they start growing and uh, you know and you're like okay six months you're like how long and um, and with with, uh, with Ellie the third one I think we thought maybe it was kind of like maybe she's going to be the last one. So she, like, really lingered. I mean, she was, like, in, I don't know, she was over a year, and she's in bed. And half the time I end up on the floor. And, you know, so I'm, like, peeking up, like, hey, what are you guys doing up there? And, uh, you know, I'm, like, you know, down here, like, you know. And But here's the thing. Well, so Ellie, the, the thing is, Ellie, as she grew, she developed this fantastic, this is why I ended up on the floor. It's called the axe kick guys that watch MMA, which is one of these, you know, like, I'm fine with this, like, you know, but she does these, you know, all right, I got got it, I'm on the floor, well, Levi, Levi is, you know, so now we have a, a child who's our child, we got him from day one. But, you know, adoption's an amazing thing. Genetically, he's coming from different stock. And what I realized is that this kid is superior to our biological children. 
And so, and so by six months, I, I'm not joking, by six months, he kicked me out of my own bed with his head. He was just like, he was just like, time's up, old man. Yeah. And I was just like, I'm on the floor. I was like, what in the world? And he's like, she's my woman. I was like, and I mean, the kid, he was just, he was like, you guys probably don't have squirrels much out here, do you? Probably not a lot of squirrels. I, I, I got some fruit trees and squirrels. And, and, you know, first I was trying to do the catch them in a cage. Now I just I got a pellet rifle. But, but I, I, I had these leather gloves. And I was like, thinking this little squirrel. So I put on these thick leather gloves. I'm just like, I just grab them out of the cage. It's stupid. It's like a rat. The thing is just a bundle of muscle. It's just wrapped around me. I'm just like, oh, my gosh. These things are, you know. And, you know but anyway, this... Levi is like the, he's like, he's like a little pit bull. You know, six months, he's just muscle. And not only that, but he's way smarter, way better looking. I mean, at eight months than my, than my, than my children, better looking than me, but even, but um, at eight months, I I was like, my kids at like, you know, at a, at a year, they're kind of like grabbing the, the coffee table and they're kind of walking a little bit. At eight months, I was watching him. He runs in, he grabs this stool, puts it up on the counter, climbs up and grabs a knife. I was like, he's eight months. And then he's on the phone. He's like, hey, Pa. I'm like, you're eight months old. You're having conversation. It's understandable. Anyway, um, back, to the, back to the message. So all of that to say, Joel Richardson can very much relate to Father Abraham, who threw a great feast on the day the child was born. So when the time comes, that was, that was that was a joke. All right. So when the time comes that, you know, when he's eight days old, he throws a great feast, right? But when Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. Now, Paul later refers to this, and he doesn't use the word mocking. He uses the word persecuted. He says that Ishmael was actually persecuting Isaac. Here it says mocking. So now Sarah sees that Ishmael's mocking Isaac. Now remember how it started? Wife. Why don't you take her to be your wife? Get rid of that slave woman and her son. This is his son. This is Abraham's son. He's 14 years old. Get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac see how this started? One bad decision and where it's going. Now really, the history of the conflict throughout the Middle East is the snowballing effect of this. And really, the conflict between Isaac and Ishmael, and it really gets, you know, only continues to get worse. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God says to him, listen, and this is one of those harsh verses that people point to in the Old Testament. They say, God was mean in the Old Testament. The point is this. The Lord, through Abraham's seed, was bringing forth Jesus, the Messiah, into the world. He was creating a a family, a people, a nation, a holy womb that would birth the Messiah into the world, whereby eventually all of creation would be redeemed. Okay? This was the plan of God to redeem and heal and restore His creation. Not Not just the Jews. All of creation. And the Lord says, listen, Abraham, I told you, you blew it, and now your son is going to pay the price because of your bad decisions. And he goes, don't be distressed about the boy. In other words, I have a plan. And if the boy stays in the camp, he's going to thwart the plan. This just can't be the way it is. Don't be distressed. Listen to your maidservant. Do whatever Sarah tells you because it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. He goes, listen, I'm going to take care of the boy. I'm going to make him into a nation also because he's your offspring. You have to trust me that I'm going to take care of him, but you have to kick him out of the family, kick him out of the camp. And this is, this is harsh. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water, gave them to Hagar, set, it, set them on her shoulders, and sent them off with the boy. She went on her way. She wanders in the desert. When the water in the skin is gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. You know, you guys live in the desert. You understand desert. They're dehydrated. She puts him under one of the bushes to die, and she leaves. She goes about a bow shot away. 
she says, I can't watch him die. And she sits there and just begins to sob. So he's a 14-year-old kid, but he obviously must have been kind of a kind of a mama's boy, you know, that he's, you know, he's dying and she just kind of leaves him there. God heard the boy crying. Now the Lord had promised, hey, listen, hey, he promised Hagar, he promised Abraham, I'm going to take care of him. God heard the boy crying, and so he calls. He says, Hagar, what's the matter? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying. Now, this is the first fulfillment of God hears. Ishmael means the Lord hears. This is sort of the first prophetic fulfillment. Lift up the boy and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. I told you I was going to take care of him. Why are you over here bawling? Why don't you trust me? Verse 19, God opens her eyes. She sees a well of water. And then it just kind of goes, you know, just sort of his whole life. So she went, she filled it with skin of water. She gave the boy some drink. God was with the boy. He lived in the desert. He grew up. He became an archer. She got him a wife from Egypt. And it just kind of tells the whole life of his you know, early life. And then it just zip, zip, zip. God took care of him. Just in one sentence. It just kind of, he grew up. He was, he was a great archer. He got a wife from Egypt. Now, <clears throat> the point that I want to convey here is often we, we read these Old Testament stories learn them in Sunday school, especially in the Old Testament. And it's almost like we relate to them almost like fairy tales. and Or just Bible stories, you know, Father Abraham, whatever, you know. And, and so we associate these things that we often learned as children, and we, we associate those things as being childish, or we just don't relate to them like they're real. But here's the point. This happened to a kid. Like this, we read it from the Bible, but this was a kid's life. This was a real little kid. And granted, his story then gets recorded in Scripture. But you had a little 14-year-old kid. He had a dad. He had a mother. He had this life. Everything's great. And in one day, he loses his father, his mother, his inheritance. He loses it all. He's out in the desert. Even his mother abandons him. And you talk about abandonment, not just fatherlessness, but motherlessness, just this this traumatic orphan experience and then in his mind he's blaming it all on Isaac if it wasn't for that little punk Isaac I would still have everything you know and so we, we have to take into consideration the, the very real trauma that happened with this little kid and then how did this play out so here's what's crazy and here's what's wild I don't fully understand how this stuff works. The Jews with a biblical mindset really understand this, which is the power of blessing your children, the power of the Father's blessing, you know, and I try to practice it. I admit sometimes I'm a little bit, you know, I come home and the kids, and I'm like, you morons, you know, but, but oftentimes I try to lay my hands on their head and say, I bless you, I give you the Father's blessing. You are beautiful, you know, you're so good at this, you you know, and just affirm them. But there's power in the Father laying, you know, literally put your hands on your kids and bless them and speak life into them all there, you know, growing up and just do it over and again. Hopefully it'll cancel out uh, all the other stuff that you say when you're tired. But approximately 2,600 years later, this is amazing, a direct descendant of Ishmael, okay, Ishmael has this traumatic experience of radical abandonment. You know, just the whole that, that whole experience that we just saw. And then a direct descendant, or at least someone who claims to be a direct descendant of Ishmael named Muhammad, who also, by the way, was an orphan, who had been passed around from, you know, to his grandfather to different people, and they kept dying. And so he had this kind of crazy young life. He arises to become the so-called prophet of a new religion called Islam. And for those of you that don't know the story, he... Um, Muhammad, uh, the the tradition of the region was each year there was a holy month called Ramadan where all the pagans of the region would fast for a month. And he went out to this cave called Hira, the cave of Hira, and he spent a month in the cave. He was married to a a woman that was quite a bit older, one of the most wealthy uh, traders in the region. And so I guess his job gave him a month off. And so he's out there and he's fasting and praying. And this, as Islamic tradition says, this spirit comes over him, and it literally is crushing him and choking him. And he's terrified, and he believes it's a demon. And in Arabic it says, Ikra, which means recite. And the the reference is to, in Arabia at the time, there were these ecstatic poets 
that would basically allow spirits to channel through them and, and, and they would essentially like rap in the spirit. They would do like Arabic poetry. And uh, it's kind of interesting. Some of, some, of the, some of the modern singers and rappers have these kind of weird things, you know, like Beyonce is talking like, I allow this thing to come into me. And so, anyway, I, that just popped my head. But, um, but basically that's, and he, and so Muhammad says, I can't Ikra because I'm not one of these ecstatic poets. And so a second time, this thing just, you know, it's choking him to the point where he says he felt like he was going to die. And it says, Ikra! And he still can't do it. The third time it comes on him, and the beginning, the first words of the Quran flow out of his mouth. And that's how the Quran began to be inspired. Now, for those of you that know the Bible, when angels, now Muhammad says this was Gabriel. That was Gabriel. If you know the Bible, what, is the, what do the angels always say when they show up? Fear not. Fear not, right? And usually they're trembling. Muhammad himself believed he was demon-possessed. He was suicidal. He came back trembling to his wife, Khadija. And she basically, this is essentially what happened. Again, she's about 15 years older. Uh, he's kind of her greatest asset in her company. And she says, oh, no, 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 Muhammad, you're not demon-possessed. You're a prophet. Go with it. And this is basically how Islam began. He then began receiving the, the lying deception of those that praised him and said, oh, no, this is, this is God, this is Gabriel. And really, the bottom line as Christians, uh, you know, because there's all these debates within the missions world, well, was Muhammad slightly inspired, but he was just off a little bit? The bottom line is, was it Gabriel or was it not Gabriel? Because if it's Gabriel, then we all need to become Muslims. If it's not, then it's a demon. Okay, and I don't think it takes the discernment of a log to look at that and go, hey, that was a demon. It's choking him, it's killing him, he was terrified, he was trembling, he was suicidal. He thought it was a demon, but they convinced him it was Gabriel, and he allowed himself to then become the vessel that, that this stuff flowed through. That's how Islam began. Okay, so, then Islam has the Quran, that's their holy book. That's the result of these experiences of Muhammad spitting this stuff out for 23 years. What does Islam declare? This is, this is the spirit of Islam. Knowing this direct descendant of Ishmael has this experience, allows the spirit to channel through him. What comes out? God. This is the essence of Islam. God, Allah, is not a father. God is not a father. And you can hear in these declarations the bitter, broken cry of Ishmael echoing down through the generations. God has no son. God has no son. And then this one is where it becomes more than just coincidental. You know, this is where, again, those who have ears to hear. Ishmael, not Isaac, is the heir of, of Abraham and of, of God, of Allah. So all of those elements of Ishmael's experience then essentially are birthed out into the earth. You know, his painful brokenness. And so this is sort of my spiritual definition of Islam. It's the bitter, the broken and bitter cry of Ishmael, the fatherless, the orphan, the abandoned, that has been memorialized, creedalized, and canonized in the Quran as a religion. And this is where I'm controversial in what I say is the greatest anti-Christ religion the world has ever known. And why do I say that? 1 John 2.22, the apostle speaking, gives us the spiritual definition, the theology of the Antichrist. It says, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Islam affirms that Isa is the Masi, is the Messiah, technically. But then they strip that term of everything that it really means. It's kind of like when a, you know, when a Mormon says, you know, I believe Jesus is the Savior of the world. Mitt Romney. You know, they don't mean the same thing that we mean. They pour different meaning into it. So they, they say that Jesus is the Messiah in name only, but what they mean is that that means he was born of a virgin, but everything else that matters from a biblical perspective, no. He's just another prophet in a long line of prophets that did miracles and was born of a virgin. That's it. He certainly didn't die on the cross. He's not the divine son of God. He's not the savior. He's definitely not the king of the Jews and all of these things. So it's the man that denies that Jesus is the Christ. Islam denies that Jesus is the Messiah according to the biblical definition, which is the right definition. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father, 
and the sun. If you've been following the news, what are they doing throughout the Middle East? They're, they're actually cutting people's heads off. They're cutting people's heads off. John 16, 2 and 3, Jesus said, In fact, the time is coming when those who kill you will believe that they are offering God a service. They do these things because they don't know the Father, they don't know me, the Father and the Son. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. No one who denies the Son has God. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So there's the definition of the spirit of Antichrist, and Islam is the very embodiment of that. Real briefly, just a handful of verses from the Quran, because you meet Muslims and say, oh, my friend, we read the Bible too. You know, they kind of do that thing, and it's, it's a lie, because they believe the Bible's corrupted, and it's perverted, and, but, but here in the United States, they kind of prey on many people's ignorance. And so here's Surah 112, 1-4, say, He is Allah, the one, Allah, the eternally besought of all. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten. In other words, he's not a father, he is not a son. And the essence of Islamic theology is to say, listen, God is great. When you call him a father, you're likening him to something down here and you're diminishing him. No, he's unlike anything on heaven or on earth or anything you can even comprehend. He's utterly great and that's it. And everything that they emphasize is his greatness, his greatness, his, his otherness, his distance, his, you know, just... Anything that tries to lower him, that likens him to something that we can relate to. You know, even if you say God is love, they go, love's a human emotion. You're lowering him. That's blasphemy. And there's none comparable unto him. Surah 19, 88 through 92. They said, now when it says they, it's speaking of Christians, Orthodox Christians down through history, the most gracious hath begotten a son. This is what we all say. God sent his only begotten son. You have uttered a gross blasphemy. That so much so, the heavens are about to shatter, the earth is about to tear asunder, the mountains are about to crumble, because they claim the most gracious hath begotten a son. Nay, it is not befitting the most gracious that he should beget a son. Okay, you're trying to liken him to you. That's essentially the Islamic argument. No, he's great. Everything is about his greatness. The Christians call Christ the Son of Allah. That is a saying from their mouth. In this, they but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say. In other words, you guys are just like pagans. If you say that God has a son, you're a pagan. Allah's curse beyond them. How they are deluded. I, I apologize for even reading this in church. It's, it's almost like spiritual pornography or something. I, mean, I don't mean to like defile you. But I want you to see what's actually in the Quran. Because, I mean, the bottom line is, when you meet a Muslim, they say, Oh, yeah, we believe the same thing. Don't. You say, if I believe what all Orthodox Christians have down through history, that God's cursing me and I'm a blasphemer and a pagan. Let's just be honest. Let's just at least be honest about it. Yes, there's some similarities, but the differences are pretty darn important. They, the Quran itself goes for every essential foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, and it goes for it with both barrels blazing. It goes for the jugular. It's the only book that is a direct polemic against the Christian faith. I mean, you know, other philosophies and religions disagree with us. But they, it's not in their holy book. Like, if you believe Christian doctrine, you're a pagan. God's cursing you. <clears throat> I want to tell you what I call a tale of two fathers. And uh, I've kind of adapted this and changed this. And, uh, initially, I sort of borrowed a version of it. <clears throat> You've got two fathers. One, one guy comes home from work, and he's exhausted. And as most dads are when they come home from work, as soon as he walks in, the kids say, Daddy, Daddy. You know, and my daughter's like, Daddy, Daddy's home. And, um, Daddy, will you play with me? And, um, and so, you know, what the great dad that I am, I say, I just need a half an hour to shift into the home life as I shift from my work mentality, whatever, you know, just a way of saying, give me a half hour. And then the wife goes, how come you get a half hour? I don't get a half hour all day long. I never got a break. What are you doing? You get a half an hour. Take them! You know, sort of thing. 
And uh, but so what is what does the daughter want to do, right? When you get daughters, they're like, "What do you want to play, honey? You know, football, dolls." And so you're like, "Awesome! Like that's so cool." Because all day long at work, I was just like, "Man, I just want to play with Barbies." And you know, and it's like exactly what. Like me and my buddies, we get together. We're like, hey, "What do you guys want to do? We go to like Buffalo Wild Wings, watch the fights." just thinking we could just hang out and just play with dolls or something. I was like, right on, man, let's do it. So the dad is down on the carpet, you know? I mean, you know, this is, this is, you're down on the carpet and you're sitting there and you're like, all right, you're like, oh, wow, those are great shoes, you know, and you're, you know, you're doing the whole thing and, you know, like, that's all it takes. And they're like into it. They're like, yes, I made them. You're like, that's amazing. You have such good taste and design. You know, is that tie-dye? Like, tie-dye, you idiot? That's fatigue. And you're like, oh, gosh, sorry. How do I know so much about fabrics? <clears throat> and so this is what dads do. They may, Now, with Levi, I come home, and literally, I walk in the door, and he goes, Daddy, I'm going to give you the beat down. I was like, what? You're going to beat me the second I walk in the door? And he just wants to fight. He's like, Daddy, fight me. Well, the thing of it is, is with Levi, if I just, like, I'm tired, like, I'll just lay on him. I'm like, okay, let's wrestle. And then you just lay on him and you go, Levi's a pillow. You know, like, he doesn't like that. Like, that's not fun. You have to let him beat you. You have to at least let him beat you sometimes. Otherwise, you know, you kind of ruin it. And, uh, and so here's, you know, whether it's your daughters, you're making an idiot of yourself, you're playing with dolls. You're, you're letting a three-year-old beat you up. This is what dads do. This is what a dad does. He, he makes a fool. He's, he lowers himself. He, he loves his children. At least this is what we should do. There's a lot of days that I come home and like, you know, not now. Then the other father comes home, and his kids say, Daddy, Daddy, will you play with me? He says, what? He says, Daddy, will you play with me? He says, don't you know who I am? Nay, it is not befitting the CEO of whatever that I'm going to play with dolls. Don't you know it's not befitting the dignity and the majesty? I'm daddy. I don't play. Play with your sisters. Play with. Have your mother do it. You know what I'm saying? So, this is just such an easy story. It's such an easy story. Who wants the second guy to be their dad? No one. No one. Anybody can relate to this. Now, I'll just say this. This is the story that I've always used, and I've said, listen, you have a perfect picture. It's very simple in the difference between the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran. The God of the Quran is all about his greatness. He's only about his greatness, whereas the God of the Bible is great, but he's all about his love. And the bottom line is, between the two men, which one's greater? The one that doesn't mind humbling himself? Because the truth is, is that true greatness is it doesn't need to be protected. It doesn't need to be defended. And in fact, the God of love is greater than some God who's trying to say, no, you know, you can't relate to me. The God who emptied himself, the God who came down to the earth, although he's God Almighty, he created the universe, he took on flesh, and he suffered and embraced this lousy life, you know, in this world and embraced a cross because he loves his children. So you go, God himself chose to humiliate himself because he loves us. That's the essence of who the God of the Bible is. He's the God that hears us, the God that sees us, the God that condescends, the God that comes down. If God is good and if he is loving, then he will share himself with us. There's no question about that. The God of the Quran is an insecure, pathetic demon that is unworthy of any form of worship. He's unworthy of any of these things. And then the God of the Bible says, you are my sons and daughters. He adopts us into his family, right? I was a complete little heathen pagan. I deserve, if I had got what I had coming to me, absolutely, I would be in hell right now. I can tell you stories. I should be in hell. And I have friends that are in hell right now. I should be in hell. And he made me a son. Everyone in this, he's, he's adopted us. This is, the, this is the heart of who God is. And then the God of Islam says, I'm not going to show up. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to hear you. I'm not going to listen to you. 
I'm just great. And by the way, you are my slaves. Don't call yourself my children. You're my slaves. We are, you know, as Christians, we are ambassadors of this message. We are the stewards of this message. And yet most Christians that I run into throughout the world are afraid of Muslims. Like they somehow have some better message. The bottom line is what we have is so superior in every way to that message. We have an awesome message and we need to go, be confident. And when they come at us with both barrels blazing, we need to come back with both barrels blazing and say no. And you know, you, you, know, you don't be as crude as I am saying it's an in, in, insecure pathetic team making a point, but the point is that's true. You know, it requires sensitivity, but we need to be confident in the message that we have, and we need to learn how to minister to Muslims, and you know, if you're in relationship with someone, or, you know, just praying for somebody, this needs to be part of the equation, which is confidence. We have the most superior message that everyone out there is yearning for, and yet we're like timid and afraid, and they're like gung-ho and going for it, and they're winning people from our spheres and circles. Not surprisingly, because of the theology of Islam, it actually forbids adoption. This is the, the outplaying of this, this theology. Now, what to be fair, Islam says, like, you know, it's okay to, to take care of another, like, say, maybe your friends get killed and or something. You, take, you can take the child into your family, but, but into your home, but they're never part of your family. They never share in the inheritance. They certainly would never take on your name. You're just raising them as a boy or somewhere, you know, a roommate. They could marry your kids, you know, that sort of thing. Christianity and, and, and sort of Judeo-Christian world always practices adoption throughout the earth. Throughout the Islamic world, there's, there's not adoption. There's some, you know, like a little teeny bit, but, um, but the Quran actually forbids that. It says, nor has he made your adopted sons your biological sons. In other words, those that you take in your house, don't, don't treat them like they're actually your own children. Such is only the manner of speech by your mouths. Oh, but Allah tells the truth. He shows the right way. Call them by the names of their fathers. That is more just in the sight of Allah. So never treat them like family. Always treat them like a roommate at best. Um, and, whoop, go back. What did I do? Yes, Romans 8, 15. We have not received the spirit of bondage to fear. We have all received the spirit of sonship. That's why the Bible, because this is, the, the, the idea that we are adopted is the outplaying of who God is. And that's throughout the scriptures. We cry out, Abba, Father. The idea that Islam doesn't allow adoption is the outplay of who that God is. And so then, the Lord is calling all of us to adopt orphans, to have that father heart. Now, whether that's literal or in a spiritual sense. My point is this, in telling the story of the two fathers is, uh, I'll just go ahead. Here's my, here's my boy Levi. A little, bit, oh, a little bit of a typo there. See what I said about him being way better looking? Um, this kid's just awesome. Um, but if, 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 if I was to come here and just do a sermon on a, you know, adoption, I could show you pictures of adorable children and everybody's heart would melt. And it's easy to, to see a child and say, like, oh, I would love to champion that child or, you know, to rescue that child. But here's the thing, and this is, this is the point that I want to make. Muslims are the spiritual orphans of the earth. They're serving a God that doesn't show up. You know, and I actually told the story of the dad that comes home and plays with his kids and then the dad that comes home and doesn't play with his kids. Um, the truth is, the God of Islam, he doesn't He's the God that, he's the father that never, the kids never meet. He doesn't exist. Okay? He never shows up. That's the better, if I was to do the analogy, that's better. The God that comes home, the father that comes home and loves his children versus the one that they'll never know. And so, Muslims today are some of the most God-hungry, God-conscious people in the earth. But they're searching in all the wrong places. We're the ones that have the message of what they're looking for. We do. The Lord's calling all of us to rescue the orphans, whether it be literal orphans or whether it be the spiritual orphans. So, you know, it's easy for your heart to melt over a child. It's not as easy to melt if you see a guy with a beard going, Death to America! But we need to receive the Father's heart and look through the veneer because the Father looks down and sees a lost orphan 
who's yearning for God. Most often, some of them have given themselves over to, to Satan, if I'm to be fair. There's Ruby. The funny thing is, I'll just tell you the story. So we had Levi, and he was just so awesome. We, you know, it was like such a blessing. We're like, let's do it again. It was such a great experience. Um, but, you know, we, we wanted uh, we wanted another African-American boy. One, we didn't want him to be the only brown boy in the family. But the part of it, in the back of my mind, was like, let's just get him a little brother um, so that he'll beat him up instead of me. That was kind of the idea. Like, it'll be like a diversion so that I'll still have a back when I'm, you know, in my 50s. Um, but so we found a, a gal, so she was white. Um, I should probably shouldn't say it, just, but, um, she, so she was, she was prostituted. And, um, but she said, well, you know, the dad is, is definitely black. And so, and he was supposed to be a boy. And so he came out a little white girl. Um, and so, you know, we were like, oh, which is fine. I mean, it's like not like you know we white we like white people too, but it was just like, like, you know. Anyway, so it was just kind of the, the whole story. I think she's got some Hispanic or something. Or we're not sure. Maybe some people say maybe Filipino. I say she's Eskimo. You know, you just make up whatever you want. But what's so funny is that she's in she's the, the two percentile of her height and weight. So she's teeny. She's two years younger, and then Levi is like like 110th percentile. I mean, he's just like, he's huge. He's, he's, uh, he's tall, and, and for his height and weight, he's like the biggest for his age. How, how tall are you, Rich? 6'6". Six, six. So his birth father was 6'4". <laughs> so I'm going to, my boy is going to like tower over me. So that's why I like the discipline action, like the establishing of the authority has to be, I, I've got like a year left before, before it's all over. But here, here's just one final picture is because he still thinks he's a little, you know, he's only three. And so we take him to the grocery store. And I, I mean, that doesn't even show the difference, you know, in terms of size. But the funny thing is, is that she is a tough little thing because he's like love and honor, you know, and she's like, she's like learning how to fight her, her little brother, you know, wrestle and defend herself. So <clears throat> do I have one more? In conclusion. In the last days, just before we transition from the Old Testament into the New Testament, the Lord promised that in the last days, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. That's literal. Elijah will come before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. But I also believe he's releasing the spirit of Elijah into his body. What's the spirit of Elijah? The essence is he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children hearts of the children to the fathers. And there's many, many things that we could apply this to. But there's a spiritual principle that that touches, it's an umbrella that touches many different areas. So that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I believe that restoration of the fatherhood of God, as we are ambassadors of the Father, ambassadors of Jesus, that's something the church needs to get. Whether it be for real orphans or assisting and blessing people that are doing adoption, or people that are going for Islam, just any number of people that are growing up now without a father. I mean, there's so many arenas that we can apply it to. I just want to pray for you all and let you go. Father, we, we thank you that throughout this room, everyone in this room, you look down on the earth, sea of humanity, people lost and without a shepherd, and Somewhere along the line, whether it be in our lives or in our going back to our parents, grandparents, you look down at, a, at essentially a pagan people and you inserted yourselves in, yourself into our lives. You made us your children. You made us your children. You adopted us into your family and, and you've made us as your biological children. You've made us one. It's not, you don't just say, You don't just call us children by name. You've made us into a family. Wherever we go throughout the earth, any nation, we have brothers and sisters. We have family. And for all of eternity, we get to look upon the God that loved us so much that he was willing to lay his life down for us. Father, we ask that throughout this congregation, you would move by your Holy Spirit, that you would leave a deposit, that you would put your heart into our hearts, 
and that we could be those that carry that spirit of Elijah that restores the heart of the father to the children, that sees people with your eyes and not through the eyes of the news or through the, through the natural lens. We ask that we would truly be ambassadors. We ask that you would burn this into our hearts, that you would take just that drop of your heart and put it into ours and make it part of us in order that you would not come and smite the land with a curse. We ask that you would do a great thing in this area, in our immediate spheres of influence in our lives and throughout greater Las Vegas. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I have the ushers come forward and um, take an offering for our brother. We appreciate uh, him sharing.